0: The limited partner shares in the potential outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor with no day-to-day operating requirements, whose liability is limited to the extent of their share of ownership, the limited partner has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. Now they say you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Are you looking to elevate your network, connect with individuals that bring your average up the Limited Partner is more than just a podcast. It's a community to learn, to participate, to connect. There's no other community out there like this for Limited Partners. So subscribe to the podcast, but most importantly, join the community at thelimitedpartner.com. Welcome to the podcast with your host, Jake Wiley. Welcome, partners. This is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I'm joined by Luke DeBro. Luke, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm glad to have you here.
1: Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on, Jake. Appreciate you uh, reaching out and uh, looking forward to to chatting with you.
0: Yeah, I think this is going to be a, a great conversation. But for my listeners sake, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little, little background on how you got to where you are, the, the journey that, that took you there. And we'll go from there.
1: So I was exposed to real estate growing up. My parents, they had a primary residence and then they ended up getting another residence. And so they ended up renting out the the previous one. It was a single family and then I just kind of ended up seeing as a high schooler, you know, the, I guess the different difficulties that can happen if you become a, 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 landlord or an investor by default, instead of by like being very proactive or intentional about it. And that kind of like turned me off a little bit in terms of like single family. And so, and we can get into that more, of course, but ultimately the, you know, real estate was something that was always in the back of my head. And, and so once I ended up finishing grad school, I actually read rich dad, poor dad everything in there ended up just making sense to me. I think that's the case for a lot of people. I think that resonates with a lot of people. And so a lot of those concepts that were in there ended up just really making sense. And so from there, I ended up looking at different options. I didn't really look at single family at all. I was like tw- in my early twenties and didn't look at single family, just wasn't attractive to me for the, for the reasons I mentioned before about just seeing my, my parents' own experience. Ultimately had the opportunity to become an LP just over four years ago now. And so, you know, I ended up becoming an LP in, in a deal and another deal and then be and then recently became a general partner as well earlier this year and so yeah the journey just kind of continued on from there that's that's like the high level overview and i'll let you you know dive in where where you feel like it makes sense though
0: sure you know I, i love the mention of rich dad poor dad that book gets mentioned on this show probably more than any other book in the entire world. Uh, It was a foundation for so many people. I'm going to take it in a little bit of a different direction now. What about Rich Dad, Poor Dad did you find to not be true or not well enough articulated?
1: I've never heard that question before. I think it's a really good question. I think part of it is... Rightfully so. It simplifies the process of moving from, you know, an employee and self-employed over to a business owner and investor. It it simplifies it. But part of what it doesn't talk about is the amount of education that's needed, I think. And this is me kind of remembering 10 years ago, right? But I'm thinking the education that's needed and probably the level of responsibility. If you are going to move over and become either a business owner or be an investor, like. Right. The amount of responsibility that you either need to take for yourself or for other people, because you're either responsible for their paychecks or responsible for their investments. So that's probably something that wasn't talked about as much. That is really relevant for for anyone who's looking to you know move over to that side of things.
0: The other thing I'd be curious to see how this dovetails with your experience, because you know you specifically said you did you weren't interested in single family, but I think that the single family is one of the key starting points and kind of a rich dad of like go out and make an investment like you can do this
1: yeah for sure yeah and I think you know at the same time I ended up seeing you know either duplexes triplexes fourplexes and so I ended up thinking well if there's a way to kind of start there as opposed to starting with single family well why not end up doing that I think single family ends up making now that I've 10 years removed from it and I've had all this other investing experience I think single family ends up making sense for a number of ways I think if like renting out by the room is is an awesome option. Option. I think if it's something like a short term rental, then that can be great, right? Because of the because then the I guess the risk versus reward ends up, I can make more sense of it in my head, but I think that there's just a lot of different options out there, whether somebody wants to start out single family or they do multifamily right off the jump.
0: Keeping with the, the rich dad, poor dad theme, then. and in terms of one of the things I really like about the book is for some reason, it gets people to take action. People read it and then they like they go do something. So what was your jumping off point? What did you do first?
1: Wow. So yeah, the first thing that I did was I started paper trading options that was the first thing that I did. So it wasn't even real estate related. Right. I started doing that. And, uh, and then I actually like traded some options. I realized it wasn't, I did fine. I did well, but it just, I was like, this isn't sustainable. But in terms of actual, you know, tangible action, my parents, they had a single family and it was actually the house that I was in until I was four or five. And my brother and I, we ended up going and changing out the property manager. And so that was probably like the first real tangible action. And it wasn't even, you know, investing. It was more of like an asset management perspective, right? But that was that was super valuable because you know that's something that I think a lot of people don't think about quite as much if they are going to have a third-party property management company. I'd say that, that was the first tangible action. That was when I was 24, 25, something like that. That's great.
0: Yeah, I think about property management is probably one of the most important things that you can do for managing real estate. And It's probably one of the least, I want to say like dug into aspects of it, right? Because you find a property manager, they're like, oh, they've been in business for a long time. Like here are the keys, like go do your thing. It's so important to get that right. Because, you know, good property manager can make you money. A bad property manager can cost you a ton of money and, or just kill you in the process. And I think from a single family, I I think I'm hearing between the lines, a little bit of what you're saying is that, you know, it can burn you out because there's so many problems. And when it's small, like one single family property, it's, you know, the property manager's there, but they just take the initial call and then they call you. Right, with the problem, they just drop it in your lap. It can be really expensive. And, you know, people don't care about your property the way you do it, especially. If at one point in time, it was your house.
1: And a lot of times, I mean, if you're, you know, single family, I mean, property management fees run seven to 10%, that's, that could be your entire bottom line. Right. And so if you're third party in the property management on single family, I mean, I just don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze. And that's where I say, Jake, I'm like, well, what about renting by the room so that you can get a higher premium? Or if you're doing short-term rental, like, yeah, that's more operationally intensive, but then maybe the operational costs, ends up making sense for how much you can get with the revenue? Like, of course, I mean, just rent. Renting out the house can work too. It's just, I just don't know that that would ever end up working for me, you know? And obviously it wasn't the path that went down. I think
0: that's good. And it's interesting too, in that like you know, your first action item was option trading. It wasn't single family, which is where most people started. And I mean, I personally am just getting out of like the single family long-term rental game and switching into short-term rentals for you know 1031 exchanging straight into it because you know to your point is the the revenue and the income is higher there but there is more operational work that needs to be done but I think when you're working in that space there's also better property managers that are used to dealing with that stuff right if there is an expectation of of cost and right it's kind of budgeted into the operating plan as opposed to like you know, with a single family rental, you got one, you're hoping for the best. Right. Yeah, for sure. Hope nothing happens this year. It's like when you have a short term rental, like, you know, stuff is going to happen. Therefore, it's got to be budgeted. So, you know, the revenues are higher. The upside is higher. But like, let's shift into like limited partners. So you started really kind of this journey is somewhere along the line as a limited partner before you became a general partner. Talk to me about that a little
1: bit. You know, I was interested in, in investing in some form or fashion. And for me, the the quickest way that I saw to really get involved within multifamily, I had enough capital to become an LP, you know, four or five years ago, but I didn't have enough to actually become a GP. At the time I lived in California in Southern California. Now I I live in central Texas. I live in Austin there with my wife, but yeah, back then I didn't, I just didn't have the capital to become a GP. Right. And so I ended up looking at what can I do now to start getting a return, but then to also learn. And that's why I ended up going down that route. By the time I had saved up enough money, I was ready. I was ready to, to already invest at that point. And so I found out about the opportunity through um, a friend of a friend, essentially old roommate who I uh, went to college with. He ended up knowing one of the uh, the lead sponsors. And so, yeah, just got introduced, found out about it, did due diligence of my own and then, you know, wired the money. And I was like, all right, let's let's go. I'm ready to, I'm ready to start getting my checks.
0: Did it work out well? I think the diligence aspect is such a, a crucial part of it. But, you know, for your first Deal or two? Did it did it go like you expected? You feel like you got lucky?
1: You know what? I honestly do feel very fortunate because I know some people like so for context, they were five-year holds. One of them is just selling now and on a four-year hold, which is great. But I've I've heard horror stories about like all the whole gamut, right? It's like sometimes. People, they never get distributions or there's capital calls or they never end up getting their capital. They never get a return on their capital. It's just they get all their money back and and that's, that's great. But yeah, for these, I mean, the distributions were 2% per quarter, every single quarter. One quarter was paused due to COVID, right? Right when COVID started, they decided to pause distributions and rightfully so. And, you know, communication has been good. I have a relationship with one of the lead sponsors. Honestly, it's been pretty... Um, there haven't been a lot of hiccups, honestly. I mean, you know, there's been different things that they've done, like change out property management. There's, you know, bad debt that's collected because of COVID and other issues, but, I mean, honestly, they've they've done a great job and, and they've gone very, very well in comparison to other horror stories that I've I've heard on on uh, the LP side of things.
0: Let's dig in there a little bit because I think that that's one, you know, the idea of being an LP is to be a passive investor, which means that you don't have to be active and you don't have to be worrying about the operations. But there is a diligence phase at the beginning that you need to be really thoughtful about, right? Because your money's locked up five, seven, you know, possibly longer. And, you know, how you know, one capital president And then two, like getting the return that you're expecting from the the horror stories that you've heard about, or you've experienced, you know, what advice can you give people that says like, well, if you've done this, then this wouldn't have happened like that.
1: (laughs) So I'll go off of the advice that I, of what I did. And then now as a GP, the advice that I give to LPs as well. I mean, first and foremost is who is the team, right? Like, do you have a relationship with that person? Have you already built a relationship with that person? Do you trust them? I mean, that's extremely important. I mean, you can underwrite to anything and make things look pretty. in terms of returns, I mean, actually trusting the team that's there is important, like on a personal level, you know, do you actually want to talk to them? Will they pick up your phone call? Would you go out for a meal with them? You know, can you actually connect making sure that they have some sort of competency in what they're doing? If they are newer, then that's fine. Everybody has to start somewhere, but, and there need to be other people on the team who do have that experience within that specific type of asset class, right? So if they're used to doing Deep value add C class, and to have an A class now. It's like, okay, well, who's on the team? Who's actually, because they're completely different beasts, you know? The other thing that I did as well was um, secret shop them at the time. This is going above and beyond, granted, but I figured I'll spend a thousand, I'm investing. $25,000, $50,000. I'll spend $1,000 for a weekend to go in secret shop, see the area, actually get boots on the ground and have an understanding of it. And that way I can have a greater level of comfort in, in what I'm seeing there. You know, Secret shop, the properties, I actually underwrote the properties too. So I have an engineering background. That's what I studied in school. And so I just took the underwriting that the GP team had, created my own spreadsheet, which was helpful for me to understand what the levers to push and pull were and kind of what was driving the deal as well. So I guess it would be those three things, right? There's diligence on the team, but then there's also diligence on the deal, and you can do diligence from qualitative perspective or you can do it from a quantitative perspective as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice. I mean, I don't I doubt most folks are going to jump on a plane and go like walk properties and I, I do think that's a little bit probably above and beyond. I'm not saying that it was a bad idea, but you know, it is so important for you to be comfortable with the asset that you're buying. And you know, one way to do that is probably just to be super comfortable with the team and their track record and if they've got a long track record, you know, two being somewhat familiar with the asset class itself. And I mean, I think you brought up a great point in that, you know, a C-class property and an A-class property, well, maybe they're both multifamily apartments. Maybe they're both 400 units, you know, they are very, very different beast in the way the returns work and the, the types of tenants that are moving in, the longevity of their leases. All of those things are very, very different. and can make a big impact on the returns if you get any of your assets. Assumptions wrong. Like, what about the team itself? How would you recommend people get comfortable with the team?
1: I mean, the big part that I end up looking at is like, is this someone that you actually want to talk (laughs) at the very least? Like, if you get a, you know, you have to trust your gut a bit. But if you know, if you feel like if it's not a fit in terms of literally just a fit, like, do you get along or can you see yourselves getting along? Then then that's something to, to look at and to evaluate. It's not too dissimilar from a friendship or dating, right? Um, it, or a business relationship. They are different in different ways, of course. I mean, there has to be some sort of connection there. I, I, I personally think that that's important for sure. And then, I mean, the other part is actually looking at their resume and asking for what the resume looks like, right? If they are newer or if it is a different type of deal that they haven't done in their in their track record, I mean, they're aware of that, right? So they should be able to, to address that and be able to speak to that as well. Um, if that's the case, then have somebody else on the team who has that deep knowledge and experience or be able to say, hey, we have strategic advisors or whatever the case may be, right? So there's there's that as well to, to be able to think about.
0: Maybe we'll turn the conversation a little bit. I think it's along the same in lines, right? You've become a GP. So one, let's talk about that transition. And then two, I guess some of the lessons that you learned along the way to help you be a successful GP.
1: So the transition was that my wife and I, we ended up looking at where we were and what our goals were, not only financially, but just life, lifestyle and what we wanted out of life. And we knew that, okay, well, we've been involved with multifamily for a couple of years passively in order to be able to get to where we want to go. Being a GP is, is the best bet. And so for us, the strategy that we used was moving into the market. So both of the deals that that I've invested in and and that she's invested in, they've both been in San Antonio, Texas. And so we ended up looking to move there or move to Austin or move to maybe Dallas, right? If that's North Texas, it took the better part of a year, but we ended up moving from Southern California. We lived in LA for five, her five years, me nine years, ended up deciding to, to move to Austin. We moved there just about a year ago, right at the beginning of 2021. And then from there that ended up being pretty beneficial because of a couple of reasons. One is just cost of living, right? So I still have a full-time job, but with her, she was able to actually transition out of that and focus full-time on real estate and doing multifamily as opposed to trying to have one foot in one foot out, which can be difficult if, if all of the partners in a group are, are doing that, right? So that was super helpful with being able to become a general partner and then just literally being local in the market. So even the, you know, the deal, for deal as general partners where we live 10 minutes from it. Like we know the area, you know, it's we know the area from a data perspective, but then boots on the ground, like block to block, street to street, how things transition. We, we have a, a good uh, understanding of that. So that was the transition and, and it's been a good decision for us and it's worked out well, I would say.
0: That's great. It's really intense, I guess, moving into the market specifically to make... Which I love, right? I think that's a great story. And if somebody asks you, like, how serious are you about this? It's like, well, we picked up and moved to be here in the market. You know, like, obviously, then you probably have a really good story about Texas and why you chose, you know, Texas of all places to go. I mean, obviously, Texas is a great market. But I guess, what else? What else is important for your limited partners? I mean, what are some of the toughest questions they've asked you?
1: A big part of it is, I mean, some are... You know, some people are say say stay super high level, and they're just looking at okay, what's the general business plan? Okay, does that make sense? Okay, and that's it. Other people drill down into like looking at what the loss to lease trend looks like over the course of the the hold, and and how that underwriting is done. People will look at bad debt and what's been underwritten to a good one in particularly in Texas, if you're an LP and looking to invest is looking at what the GP is underwritten to for property taxes, because uh, it's fairly aggressive in Texas. That's, there's not a lot of taxes, but if you own property, that's where all the tax revenue comes from. Basically other, I mean, other things are, are really looking at what the break even occupancy is understanding the GP team. How local they are, what their experience level is with that, with the type and sort of deal. Those are those questions that that kind of stick out to me. And some people, you know, different people are different types of investors, right? I mean, some people, they focus more on numbers. Some people focus more on on people. Some people focus more on the area. So there's a number of different ways to go with it whatever the questions are that somebody's asking you, like talking to you as an investor, right? To, to your listeners as, as limited partners, whatever questions they're asking. I mean, it's just, it's just important that they make sure that those get answered. And if somebody isn't willing to answer them or can't give you the time of day, that sort of thing, then then that's also something to to consider as well. You have to be respectful of people's time, of course, right? Everybody's busy, but if somebody's not willing to jump on a phone call with you or like exchange a few emails and that should tell it all right there as well. Yeah.
0: That's an interesting dynamic, right? Because if you do have an Experienced team with a large track record, you know, they may be saying, well, look, I've got a stable pool of investors. I don't necessarily need to spend a bunch of time like training you to be one of my investors. But, you know, on the flip side, one of the number one issues that people have always pointed out to me is underappreciating investor relations, right? So no matter what, being on top of it, being able to answer questions, being proactive. And I think that that's so often underestimated when you think, like, okay, we found a deal, we underwrote things are working like the way they're supposed to, but communications and and making sure that those are on on point. I think that you may find yourself in a situation, and you can correct me if if I'm off base here, where maybe you're not getting the time of day, but you've got a team that's got a, a deep track record. And you're like, hey, look, they just If I want to get in, I just got to, you know, it's their way or the highway type of deal. But I would actually probably say that if they don't have an investor relations team built up to handle the questions that are coming in, that it's problematic, regardless of how long, you know, they've been in business.
1: You know, if we take a step back and understand it for what it is, like it is a sales process, right? And If you look at any organization that has, a group of either account managers or customer success managers, relationship managers, whatever they might end up being, they're there. They're there for a reason. It's a matter of maintaining those relationships. It's a matter of being responsive. It's a matter of educating and providing information back to the potential investors, to the customers, quote unquote, right? So I agree with you. Like, honestly, I do... I mean, I'm thinking of large organizations like large tech companies. They have customer and success managers, account managers who are there who are built out. You know, the person that you're uh, speaking to your, your listeners here, to the limited partners, if you're investing with somebody who has, let's say, 5,000 doors under their belt, right? You may not be speaking to them if you're going to go and ask a question, right? They they may have ended up putting different people in different spots in their organization to your point. like This person deals specifically with investor relations. Potentially, if things escalate, then it goes to the person whose name is on the door, right? But otherwise, they they have this person here because that's what You know, their superpower is and they're there to make sure that that all those sorts of questions are are being answered, too. I like and I appreciate your point of view. And I think it is I think it's pretty appropriate for sure.
0: Yeah. So I would say that the, the takeaway there, right, is ask your questions as many as you need to to get comfortable. And if you're not getting responses, like you can move on. Because, you know, even if somebody's got a long and and deep track record, if they're unable to or unwilling to answer the questions on the front end, then how are they going to respond in a crisis, right? Like maybe a little bit cocky in the the beginning of time, but like when things go south that they can't handle you know, your upfront questions, like just imagine what it's going to be like when things are not going well. Okay. Well, this has been a great conversation and I know you didn't get to where you are on your own. And what I like to do is I like to wrap up every show with a little bit of gratitude, giving a shout out to somebody personally that helped you along the way and kind of helped you get to where you are. So who who out there would you like to give a little shout out to you?
1: Jeez. I mean, I would, I would think my parents You know, that's who I'd go back to. You know, my dad, he he very much was entrepreneurial mindset. Set a, a tremendous example for myself and for my brother, and I feel very fortunate to to have had those all those experiences that I had. You know, I mean, granted, he didn't know about multifamily and all these different things that I'm doing now, but there was I was in this environment where it was normal to go out into the world and try to start something and do something. So I would say him, and, and then for my mom, I mean, seeing somebody who's supportive, right, and who's on the same page of trying to do those things together. I guess thinking about it now, it kind of informs the fact that you know my wife. And I were doing this together now. If I just realized that. So, yeah, I'd, I'd have gratitude for them and, you know, the, the foundation that I ended up having growing up, Jake. I love that.
0: You know, I think that, you know, my legacy, what I want for my kids, I've got four, is for them to see that we try and we push and we do things that are a little bit uncomfortable and we have conversations and we learn, and we, you know, and, and all of those things. Exactly what you're saying is that when you grew up and you're in a situation where you're out ready to try, it, like, it wasn't like, oh, you yeah, know, this seems really really foreign. This isn't what my parents did. Like your parents gave you a platform and then you took it and expanded it significantly. And, you know, you think of like, you can just p- keep paying that forward. How cool will that be? I love that.
1: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and I mean, I feel that way for, you know, I don't have children yeah. yet, but, you know, planning to have some here in the very near future. And I, I feel the exact same way too. So yeah, 100% agree with you, Jake.
0: Like this has been a great conversation. Thank you for making the time to be on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate you providing the platform. Yeah, for, I would end up saying for anybody who wants to get in touch, feel free to, to reach out to me. You can always go to our website. It's uh, makeitraincapital.com or you can shoot me an email. It's Luke, L-U-C at makeitraincapital.com. And more than happy to answer questions, you know, jump on a call, be a resource, however I can help.
0: Awesome. You know, and I think just to really kind of reiterate the point that you're making is that, you know, the show is about building a community, right? And I think it's about connecting and it's not about just being the center of influence here, but like, I want my whole network to be a network of nodes. So, you know, one, I really appreciate you, you know, being willing to connect with the audience and two, like, that's the point, right? Like the show is just the platform for starting to make these connections. So
1: thanks for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Limited Partner Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. If there's any reason you wouldn't leave us a five-star review, please email me directly at jw at jakewiley.com. Your feedback is always appreciated. Now, the show is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the limited partner community. It's a community where limited partners can come together, learn about what best in class looks like, opportunities, and most importantly, a place to connect. There is nothing out there like this. So head over to thelimitedpartner.com and sign up. We'll see you next time.